Hello. Hey, Zach. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? <laughs> Good, man. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Hanging in there. That voice you're hearing on the other end of the line is Dr. Zach DeVries. Now, the name may not ring a bell right away, but if you work in the pest control industry, I bet you're more familiar with his work than you realize. See, Zach's a research entomologist at North Carolina State University working out of Colby Shaw's Urban Entomology Lab, and he's been working on some pretty high-profile projects focusing on bed bugs and cockroaches over the past few years. Recently, Zach published a few important papers that made headlines in the pest management and urban entomology worlds, so I wanted to catch up with him to chat a bit about his research and what his findings meant for the industry. And that's exactly what we're going to get into in this episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. Now, in case you weren't already familiar with Zach, I want to point out a couple things about this guy's career, because it's pretty amazing. Zach is about to wrap up his postdoctorate work at NC State, where, in a relatively short period of time, this guy's already published or submitted almost 20 research papers. And why is he leaving North Carolina? Well, he's accepted a tenure-track assistant professor position in urban entomology at the University of Kentucky. As if all of that's not already amazing enough, the most incredible part of all this is the guy is only 30 years old. It's crazy. So I wanted to catch up with him to chat a bit about his research and what his findings meant for the industry. But before we got down to business, I wanted to first find out how someone like Zach found their way into studying bugs. As an entomologist, it makes total sense to me. But I always find everyone else's answers to be a bit amusing. And Zach definitely didn't disappoint. Very few people start off, you know, four or five years old saying, you know, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a lawyer, or I'm going to be an entomologist, right? So there's always kind of a weird winding path that people find their way into entomology and even more interestingly into urban entomology. Um, and I'm pretty sure I saw on your CV you did something with, with salamanders? Yeah, so you're, you're, you're not wrong. My, you know, so I, you know, when I started my undergrad degree, I, I, well, I, before salamanders, I came in as a math major. And I, I still like math and statistics, but not... Uh, not not on their own that that very quickly I very quickly shifted out I couldn't just do numbers I needed something else there so I, I moved into biology and specifically zoology and I you know was going through my undergraduate career and got teamed up you know I, I always thought herpetology or, or snakes reptiles amphibians I, I you know I always thought that was uh, really really fascinating so I got paired up with a researcher when I was an undergrad um, and started doing some work with with these giant aquatic salamanders, and so these are things that look. If you haven't seen them before, they could, you know, they look something like an eel essentially, and they're big. I mean, these get up to, you know, the ones we were working with were probably a foot to a foot and a half long, but they can get two feet plus, and they, these are big, slimy, you know, eel-like things. But but they're they're salamanders, um, and they're they're fully aquatic. And it was a it was a really cool project. Uh, it was a something I did as an undergraduate, looking at how these species, how, how they breathe underwater, and how they also breathe through the air. So they they bimodally breathe. They can get air from from the water and from and from the air itself. Yeah, there it was really cool and really fascinating. Kind of got me started on a career in research. Um, kind of got me plugged in and and just learning how to you know, observe interesting things, ask questions and, and yeah, take it from there. Man. So, okay. So y you go from, let's look at how salamanders breathe to, I think I want to study bed bugs. 
Yeah, so it was it was actually I, I got a pretty smooth transition only in the fact that I, I bumped into an urban entomologist, Art Appel at, at Auburn University, and he happened to have a spot available when I when I reached out to him. And it was a really smooth transition because I knew nothing about, I, I knew very little about entomology to begin with, but I certainly knew nothing about urban entomology. And when I worked with him, we started working with urban pests, but we worked in an area that I was familiar with, which I, I still to this day think is the best way to learn new skill sets is to pair something old with something new. So, so something you know well with something that's novel. So if you're working with, in, in the case of urban entomology, if you're working with baits and you're working with cockroach baits, if you want to start working with termites, maybe you start working with termite baits because you, you understand some of the concepts behind it, even though you may not know much about the pest you're, you're moving into. But but anyways, he, he had some projects actually working on respirometry, so working on breathing uh, in insects. And he'd worked with a wide variety of things, but specifically with, with cockroaches and with bed bugs. And so it was this, this just, you know, wonderful, perfect opportunity for me where I could move into a field that had application, but I could do so kind of slowly. I could get started using the knowledge I had of, of animal physiology, respirometry, metabolism, and, and use that to kind of get into this field and then expand from there. All right. So th- there was a little bit of overlap there, I guess, then with your respirometry work with salamanders and with bed bugs. But I mean, I'm, I'm imagining you know, bed bugs aren't aquatic, so there's not a lot of overlap there. I mean, it's was there a big learning curve with leaping from one to the other, or was it kind of the same basic application of, all right, we're going to measure respiration rate, we're just doing it on a much smaller scale now? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what it was. I mean, it, it was different equipment. It was it was a different, very different organisms. But but a lot of the principles were, were very similar. And, and to be honest with you, working with you know, insects because of the lack of, of regulations that we have over arthropods in general uh, actually made things a lot easier. It was, you know, it, sample size and, and number of insects that we're working with, it was a lot easier to do. You know, there, there's a little bit of a learning curve having never really reared insects, having never re- really worked with things, uh, you know, on a consistent basis that are that small. Yeah, you know, it, it took some time to get used to and took t- some time to get familiar with, but it was... Uh, I don't know. I, I think I think the respirometry kind of kind of lended itself to uh, to allowing me to, to have a smooth transition over there. When when did you start moving into what you were looking at could be used from an application or a control perspective? You know, we it, it was gradual. So so yeah, it, yeah. I just want to point that out too. You know, it was not that I immediately came in. I was looking for a field that had applications, but my my early work is is pretty basic in its nature. You know, I, I was looking at metabolism of bed bugs. I was looking at it from a sense of trying to understand how they can survive starvation for so long. So trying to get a better picture of, of you know, why they're able to survive, you know, three plus months on average, six months to a year for some individuals, why they can survive that long without getting any food or any water. Um, you know, trying to get a better grasp on that from the metabolic side. So, so, so some understanding, but not nothing certainly that's going to revolutionize or change how we're managing these pests. But then from there, we kind of slowly started expanding. And so, I, you know, I did some work with with silverfish and firebreaths as well, looking at at 
what nutrients and things they like to eat with the goals of, of trying to think of, of baiting and improving baits for those. But bed bugs, we eventually got to the point of doing, it's, it's a really cool and fascinating technique called thermolimit respirometry. Thermolimo what? Okay, I get the things that are getting a bit science heavy here. Full disclosure, Zach and I spent probably the better part of the next 20 minutes nerding out a little bit about the science of temperature change and respiration on insect survival. So I'm going to go ahead and spare you the geeky details of that part of the interview. But here's what you do need to know, though, about Zach's work with thermolimit respirometry. It may sound complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. And it's played an important role in pest control science over the years, too. You see, bugs, like termites, bed bugs, they're pretty small, right? And they do a great job of remaining perfectly still. So, when scientists want to measure the effects of temperature change on insects, simply staring at them and waiting for them to do something interesting isn't always the best approach. So, a while back, some very smart people figured out a way to track respiration patterns in insects to use as an indication of when they're being affected by these changes in temperature. This type of work is what's allowed us to forecast the distribution of things like invasive pests, such as the red imported fire ant, and, in the case of bed bugs, this type of work is why we know what critical temperature must be reached for a heat treatment to be effective. Okay, now that we've got that covered, back to Zach. Most of your research, or as focused on, with the exception of the salamander work, um, is focused on bed bugs and cockroaches. Most recently, cockroaches. Yeah, why are those such important pests to work with, and why why was there so much effort put into studying those insects? So we'll we'll take bed bugs first. I, I, you know, you've got you've got a pest here that was gone for such a long time, fifty years, give or take. And and when it popped back up in the early two thousands, late nineteen nineties, early two thousands, and really started uh, growing from there, everybody is referencing the monograph of Semicidae. So you've got this this. 60-year-old textbook uh, or monograph that, that we're all going back to. And I think that that kind of speaks to the fact that, that there's a huge research gap. And we really just don't know we, we don't know very much about this test, despite the fact that we're learning more every day, we're getting a better grasp on biology, behavior management. We still just know so little about bed bugs. And I think I, I think that really for me you know, drove my interest. That and, and then the the harm that bed bugs can cause. The the effects they have on people, especially for those of us who've worked with people who have had bed bug infestations, it, it is enormous. The, the psychological toll alone, it is not the same as termites, it's not the same as ants, it's not even the same as cockroaches. Um there there is a, a fear and anxiety associated with bed bugs that you just don't see with, with almost any other urban pest. So I, I, you know, I think for those reasons, it kind of, you know, so many questions to be asked. The effects that this pest is having, and and you know, just just having this kind of wide open field, but but a need to learn more and know more about about this, both basic information and applied information, you know, really just kind of sucked me into working, you know, working with bed bugs. And if we look at cockroaches, and, and you know, there, there's a theme here, which is bed bugs were kind of the you know, still a major problem. They're 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 the, for lack of a better term, kind of the shiny object. When I when I'm learning the field and getting into it, 
now I, I've, I've started gravitating towards and doing a lot more cockroach work. And that's, and, and I see, I see my career working with, as I continue, you know, as I continue working with, with urban pests, I, I, I see myself working with both, but cockroaches are one where when I've talked to pest control operators, cockroaches are perennial. We, we see bed bugs, but I, you know, I would argue not at the rate that we're seeing cockroaches right now. And, and the problems why I talk to people about management strategies, cockroaches have one that just keeps circling back where it's a pest that we've known for a long time. It didn't have a 50-year gap in, in where it was. We have a lot more information. We have textbooks that have been produced. Uh, the 90s was one, and there, there were another one that's supposed to come out in the not-too-distant future. You know, we know a lot more, but despite all of that, we're still having tremendous problems. And specifically, I'm, I'm referencing the German cockroach. That's the one that we're, we're you know, struggling arguably the most with. And so, you know, I'm realizing how how bad of a problem German cockroaches still are and that there still is a need to work with this pest. You know, so I find my, my research being a balancing act between working with the bed bug because we have so many things we need to answer, but also working with the cockroach because we're still having problems with the pest that, that you know, hopefully we, we should be starting to get a better handle of at this point. Now, in discussing why bed bugs and cockroaches have been a focus of Zach's research, he alluded to a common theme that is shared among most structural pests, that they have some potential to make us sick, which is why we classify them as public health pests. But despite feeding directly on our blood, the bed bug historically hasn't been given much credit as a public health pest. That's because the bed bug is not directly or indirectly responsible in spreading deadly diseases the same way ticks or mosquitoes do. Now, there has been some research over the past decade trying to link bed bugs to disease transmission, but they have yet to confirm a single case of bed bugs spreading disease to humans in the wild. But spreading disease isn't the only way a pest can make us sick, and cockroaches are a great example of this. You see, cockroaches have certain proteins in their feces, saliva, even their body parts that can be asthma triggers and can lead to serious respiratory issues for obvious reasons. So, when Zach and his team stumbled across an interesting finding in a scientific paper, he knew they may have found something that could help to make a strong argument for why bed bugs may be a more concerning public health pest than what we've previously realized. There's a paper published in 20... I want to say 2015 by Gerhard Grease at Simon Fraser University. Really great paper, just documenting the aggregation pheromone of bed bugs. Um, looking at it from a trapping perspective, from from their angle, but it it kind of hit us as a lab as as we were discussing things. You know, we came to this this realization that man, they listed histamine as as one of the components of the aggregation pheromone. It's actually the arresting component. So when bed bugs bump into histamine, it tells them you're in the right spot. It gets them to kind of stop moving and stop wandering around. When we saw that, it was kind of immediately, whoa, whoa, whoa this is a incredibly important modulator in our immune system and our, our immune response. Um, you know, we immediately thought this is worth investigating. We need to at least just see if histamine is getting into the home, if it's starting to distribute itself throughout the home. So that's exactly what they did. Zach and his team found a handful of homes, some that were infested with bed bugs and some that weren't. And then they went through and vacuumed up dust particles using the same collection techniques used when you're analyzing a home for allergens. And sure enough, they found huge amounts of histamine in homes that were infested with bed bugs and virtually nothing in homes that were uninfested. The difference in histamine levels was so shocking, even Zach and his team could hardly believe it. 
you know, so when we saw the results and when this started kind of coming off, literally coming off the machine and we started getting the readouts, you know, we were just almost in shock because it was, it was one of those questions where you say, could this actually be accumulating? And you kind of think in the back of your mind, it's like, eh, probably not. This is, this is probably not a big deal. But as soon, sure enough, as soon as we started checking and seeing that and it started showing up, we were just, you know, shocked, amazed and a little bit concerned for what the ramifications are for this. And possibly even worse is we, we followed up on some of these homes that had histamine just to see what happens once the bed bugs are eradicated. And we followed them for three months, continuously checking for bed bugs. And in the homes where bed bugs are truly eradicated, we were still detecting histamine at the same levels three months after we were there. And that combined with the, the high levels we were finding you know, was enough of a reason for us to to get to you know, obviously to publish this paper, but but to be alarmed and really worried about what other health risks bed bugs could pose. All right. So, quick recap so far: bed bugs infest our homes. That's bad. And now we know that they leave behind a huge amount of histamines that can stick around for months after these bed bugs are gone. That's also bad, right? I mean, it has to be. Why else will we spend all of this money on antihistamines if histamines were actually good for us? So, what are the actual effect of these histamines? Well, to be honest, we don't really know yet. Uh, yeah, that, that's the million-dollar question, is, is what effect do histamines have on, on human health? What's fascinating, though, is, is there's a couple of papers in the early 90s that looked in agricultural systems. So, hay dust, uh, dairy farms, a couple of other areas— and what they found is they found histamine in these environments floating around in the air, and they deemed it a, a health risk or a health hazard. Um, but what's fascinating is what they deemed a potential health risk, the levels they found were about a thousand-fold less than what we were finding. And they were in environments where people work, but not where people are sleeping and spending arguably the most time in a given day. We were finding our levels in human homes right next to the bed, right behind the headboard of the bed. So the, these areas that are, are prime exposure territory, and not to mention that, that it might also be on the sheets or on other areas, all of which we, we are right now part of this in a pilot project we've got some funding for. We actually are going to look at distribution and where histamine is, but, but building towards those health effects and, and, and doing the epidemiology to, to, you know, to trace back and see does histamine exposure relate to adverse health outcomes? That, that's exactly what we're gearing up to do. So it sounds like a no-brainer that Zach would continue his research into evaluating the potential harm that these histamines could cause, right? Well, there's one problem, though. Research costs money. And for a long time, getting funding to work with bedbugs wasn't always that easy. You know, you look at funding sources for bedbug work, and you find a lot of the major funders are, yeah, not as interested. And and you know, I, I can to some extent I can understand when you when you can take you know Anopheles mosquitoes and you can say they're responsible for X number of deaths per year. There's power behind that 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 isn't there with bedbugs, but. The other side of that is, is you end up neglecting a pest that is having tremendous, it's causing tremendous problems for, for people just because we can't identify those problems or, or they're very difficult in the case of some of the psychological problems are very difficult to quantify, very hard to get a real handle on the true effects that they're having. You know, it, it's, 
yeah, it, it's a balancing act. But I, but I do think, especially with the proposal we have right now, you know, the takeaway, even if it is or isn't funded, you know, I think the takeaway is is with, with this finding and hopefully with with others looking into the into similar areas. You know, I, I'm I'm hopeful that it's going to start shifting the needle a little bit. Bedbugs are going to start getting a little more attention because of the risks that they can pose. Yeah, you know, and I, which I think is is where it should be. You know, you look at cockroaches, which have gotten arguably a lot more attention, um, and, and in large part from from the medical community due to the allergens they produce. You know, we would be crazy to suspect that bed bugs. You know, you look at all the other indoor pests. You look at house dust mites, cockroaches, um, anything that's in large numbers that we spend a lot of time around indoors. There are allergens, and there's usually multiple allergens, so not just one. We'd be crazy to think that bed bugs are the one indoor pest that has no allergens or environmental contaminants that produces. It would be yeah, very naive of us to think that, and I, you know, I, I think that some in the uh, on the health side of this are starting to kind of, you know, see that picture and realize that that bed bugs could have some effects that that we really do need to to dig into a little bit more. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Zach's study has in some way helped to move the needle in terms of bedbugs getting the recognition they deserve as being a potentially more harmful pest than what we've given them credit for in the past. And I'm excited to see where the next chapter of this research leads. Now, Zach included bedbugs in the same conversation as cockroaches when he mentioned pests that could impact respiratory health. And there do seem to be a lot of similarities between these two pests in terms of health concerns and control issues, so it only seems natural that when Zach was working at NC State, he would also have some involvement with German cockroach research. It also doesn't hurt to be working alongside a world-renowned research entomologist known for his library of work with German cockroaches. So when I asked him how he made the transition from bedbugs into cockroaches, his answer wasn't that surprising. So, so with cockroaches, it, it's uh, I guess twofold. You know, one is is the opportunity. So when I when I left Auburn and moved to NC State to work with Dr. Kobe Shaw, you know, he he has a tremendous program that's been built around you know, management and mitigation of health impacts specifically for cockroaches. And so when, when I got here, to me, it was a, it was a no-brainer that, that that was an area I wanted to expand into. It was, you know, really getting involved in a lot of field work, but, but also, you know, starting to understand a pest that we have already defined a lot of the health impacts for. So Zach hit the ground running once he joined Kobe's lab diving right into field projects where they studied German cockroach populations in homes so that he could better become acquainted with his new lab mates. But, while the locations and the conditions of these sites changed, Zach noticed a pattern starting to form with nearly every home he surveyed. We had been in enough homes over time where we open up a counter to go underneath to apply bait, and sure enough, we, we see bug bombs under there every time. The bug bomb Zach is referring to here is what is known in the pest control industry as a total release fogger, or a TRF. Now, TRFs work by continuously releasing a mist into the air until the container is emptied. These products do a great job of knocking down exposed pests that aren't hiding under the cover of a crack or crevice. Now, TRFs can be an effective tool for managing several pests, including a variety of flying insects, when they're used properly, under the right conditions, and according to label instruction. Zach's observations of TRFs in homes that were constantly fighting stubborn German cockroach populations led him to start asking some pretty interesting questions, like, were these products actually having any effect on the populations at all, and if not, then why? And 
what, if any, surfaces were actually being treated when a TRF was used in the kitchen. So Zach and his team put together a project to see if they could find some answers. We, we wanted to go in and we really wanted to, to document very thoroughly a couple of different things. A, we wanted to look at efficacy, and then we also wanted to look at resistance profiles in cockroaches. And finally, we wanted to take a look at pesticide exposure. So with those objectives in mind, Zach and his team found a handful of homes infested with German cockroaches that they could use to test how well four over-the-counter TRFs would perform. They followed label instructions on where and how to use the TRFs in kitchens, and they took trap counts to survey cockroach populations before and after the foggers were set off. We got four different foggers, essentially, um, looked at trap catch of roaches before and after, and there was no change in the foggers. They, they did nothing to the cockroach populations whatsoever. They didn't change the population level at all. Um, but, you know, we wanted to be thorough with this, so we, we didn't want to just look at trap catches because, you know, somebody could argue that maybe they just, uh, you know, uh, you know they, they could make arguments that trap catches are not indicative of efficacy necessarily. You're not seeing if the roaches are actually dying or not. You're just trapping and maybe maybe one week had better trap catch than another, et cetera. So when we set out the foggers, we actually took cockroaches, and we took cockroaches from the lab, and we took cockroaches from those same exact homes. We vacuumed them up with the vacuum cleaner, dumped them into a dish, and sat them in that home. And what was amazing is, is those cockroaches sitting confined in a box. So the sides were greased. They couldn't escape. The cockroaches collected from the home that were forced to be exposed to these foggers you know, for, for six hours. We, we could not kill those roaches. And this is the, it's totally artificial. Cockroaches would never be exposed to a fogger like this. Pyrethroids are known, repellent, known to be repellent. You know, you would never see this level of exposure. And even with that, we still couldn't, we couldn't kill these apartment-collected cockroaches. Now, on the, con on, on the other side of that, our lab cockroaches, we killed almost all of them using this exposure method. I think it's important to take a minute to point out something very significant about those lab cockroaches Zach mentions, because they played an incredibly important role in being able to test resistance in the wild German cockroach populations he encountered. That's because the laboratory cockroaches had been reared in a controlled environment for decades, which means they hadn't been repeatedly exposed to pesticides like, say, those wild cockroach populations have. So, when scientists want to determine if a wild cockroach population is developing resistance to an active ingredient, they could compare how many cockroaches die in a wild population, such as something you would encounter in your kitchen, versus this laboratory-reared population when both are exposed to the same amount of an active ingredient. If the wild population has a higher survival rate than the laboratory population, then you may be dealing with resistance. In Zach's case, survival rates for the wild populations were so high compared to the laboratory population that there was virtually no question that they were dealing with pyrethroid-resistant populations. Okay, so back to Zach's study. To recap, they found that TRFs weren't reducing German cockroach populations, and resistance was a main reason why. So, the last question was to look at what surfaces were being treated when the foggers were used in the kitchen. And what they found wasn't that surprising. Remember, the design of a TRF is to release a product into the air where it will eventually settle on an exposed surface, which is exactly what Zach's residue data showed, with a slightly unexpected twist. So we looked at pesticides on the floor, the counters, the cabinet, and on the wall. 
the one place we couldn't find changes in pesticide residues were on vertical surfaces. So the TRFs were reaching horizontal surfaces, but surprisingly enough, were not appearing to treat vertical surfaces the same way, which could certainly affect how well the TRFs could reduce a cockroach population. And one last thing to point out here that can also impact the success of a TRF in managing German cockroach populations may actually have more to do with the cockroaches themselves than the fogger. What we know about German cockroaches is that they are thigmotactic, which is just a fancy way of saying that when they're not hunting for their next meal, they prefer to hide in tight spaces. If we combine that understanding of cockroach behavior with how we understand TRFs to work, then we can assume that many of those cockroach hiding spots where you may have the highest concentrations are probably not actually being reached. So, a TRF as a standalone treatment is probably not going to be enough to resolve a German cockroach infestation, and additional tools will likely be required to eliminate the problem. I mention this here because it points out a very important aspect of professional pest management, which is that a PMP is armed with the knowledge of the pest biology and behavior, and most importantly, he or she knows how to combine that information with the tools available so they can effectively resolve a pest problem. When a PMP uses a product or a tool, they are familiar with the product label and instructions. But the same can't always be said when somebody that doesn't have that same level of training or understanding may use the same product. When we did the study, we, we followed uh, the label instructions. We, we followed these to the letter, both on the packaging and following EPA guidelines as well in terms of, of proper use of these products. You know, uh, but that's, that's you, know, you can imagine, and that's where our pesticide residue data are, are based off of as well. But we, we've talked to, to, you know, dozens if not hundreds of people who've used these, and always it's the same. It's never, it's never no, I, I read the instructions and I followed the product. It's always, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I set off a couple in the kitchen. So, yeah, you, you, start, you start mounting up the risk, and, and you get to that point where it's like, what, you know, there should be a pro somewhere, and, and there isn't. When I asked him what he thought would be an effective solution to overcoming the potential for misapplication or misuse of a product, Zach had a pretty solid response that I think should be a bigger focus of anyone providing professional pest management services. You know, and I think that's there's been a push, and I think it's just it, it's going to take some time to get that change. But but starting to market and sell more the knowledge of of you know the PMP, I think trying to you know, get across that, that you're not just paying somebody to apply treatment. Anybody can apply treatment in some cases. You're paying them because they know how to do it. They know the right ways. They know safe ways. They know effective ways. And they know, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a good PMP, you've got somebody who, know, who has the discretion to know when an insecticide is warranted and when something's not. And if I had to speculate in terms of challenges, I think that's still one of the bigger challenges that the field faces right now, that pest control faces, is, is is getting people educated to what they're actually paying for, the, what a good service and what a good pest control job truly looks like. So it sounds like the future of pest control and the research happening behind the scenes is strongly focused on education, which sounds like a pretty good direction to head if you ask me. And. With researchers like Zach working to improve the safety and effectiveness of the pest management tools we use, I think the future is going to be pretty promising and exciting for our industry. Thanks for joining me on another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. If you liked what you heard, be sure to like and subscribe to the channel so you don't miss the release of our next episode. And 
If you have an idea or a topic you're interested in hearing more about, let me know and we may choose your idea for our next episode. To submit your feedback, email me directly at mbentley at pestworld.org. I'd love to hear what you have to say. <laughs>